Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Last night, a historic election took place in Ontario and in Northumberland. David Piccini was re-elected as the MPP for Northumberland Peterborough South with over 26,000 votes increasing his tally by 6% over the last election. Liberal Jeff Kosnick had half as many votes. The NDP candidate, Kim MacArthur Jackson, also took a huge hit. For the Green Party candidate, Lisa Francis, she met her own goal. She wanted to increase her share of the votes, and she did that with over 2,000 votes. It was nearly 6% of the total votes. That is a record for the local Green Party in this riding. On today's show, those local results plus the provincial-wide results are the topic of discussion for the entire show. I am joined by Steve Gilchrist, a former MPP under the Mike Harris government. He also lives in Northumberland County. He has worked in politics for the past 52 years. He is also the host of a show, Naturally Northumberland, here on 89.7 FM. We're going to parse out some of the numbers locally and delve into what actually happened and what dynamics were at play. I hope you will find the insights interesting, whether you agree or not. I'm so pleased to have with me today Steve Gilchrist, former MPP and a local resident, and also the host of a wonderful show on Northumberland 89.7. What's the title of your show again, Steve? Naturally Northumberland. Glad to have you on Consider This. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation, Robert. I'd like to begin talking about the results locally. Give me your perception of what happened last night. What does that tell you? Well, I think it tells me a couple of things. First off, I think we are blessed with one of the hardest working MPPs I've ever known. They don't say that just because we share the same party affiliation. I've seen David uh, crisscrossing this riding, fighting for local issues, I, I am truly impressed that he, even more than any of his predecessors in the riding, he was able to bring more resources to every one of the communities within Northumberland County and, and the south side of Peterborough County and a bit of Clarington. And, and I think that that has made a material difference in the lives of residents, whether it's improving a hockey arena or more money for health care, expanded services in schools and other social services. Those are the ways that government can have a materially positive impact on our lives. And to the extent that we all pay taxes, it's kind of nice to see, for the first time perhaps, um, the lion's share of that money coming back to this riding. And, and I think, I think uh, that's the first, uh, the, the, the first tale uh, um, of the tape, as they would say. The, the second is David's part of a team that had, I think, a materially different campaign than either of the two main opposition parties. I think people after COVID 
are quite tired of doom and gloom. I think they're looking for some positive news. I think they're looking for a brighter future for themselves, for their kids and for their businesses. And, and I was not surprised, but I was a little disappointed that virtually every word out of the mouths of the, the leaders of the other two parties were very negative. They were attacking uh, the premier, they were attacking policies. And sure, they offered their own uh, uh, sound bites as to as to the the I, here here's how I'll make this better here's how I'll make that better, but even when they did that they weren't credible. Uh, when the NDP suggested they could magically pick tens of thousands of new nurses out of the air, without explaining how they were going to get them, people people they may not know the intricate workings of the Ministry of Health. They may not know the intricate workings of the local hospital, but they're not completely out of touch when it comes to how you get teachers and nurses and other qualified professionals into those jobs. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen because some politicians snap their finger. It happens because you make investments in the, in the universities and colleges and four or five years later, you start seeing the fruits of those investments. So on the one hand, you had Premier Ford with a very positive message, get it done. And talking about expanding infrastructure, expanding investments in, in um, those, those aspects of government that encourage job creation. They don't, jo governments don't create jobs. Governments create the climate in which businesses can create jobs. And, and I think to the extent that there are 500,000 more people working in Ontario today than there were on the day that uh, Premier Ford and his government was elected in 2018, that's a staggering number. And that's 500,000 households that I suspect looked at their own circumstances and said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess with this. I'm not gonna change uh, what has been for our family, a winning formula. So I think a very long-winded answer to your first question, Robert, forgive me, but, but those are my first two impressions that both locally and provincially, there was a material difference in the offerings that the voters here in Northumberland had to, had to reflect on. There's a lot in there, and I, I'd like to go back now and let's let's tease some of that out because I, I think there was a lot of important stuff. Let's let's go back to the local results. So you have Pacini winning with 51% of the vote. Interestingly enough, at the last election, he had 45% of the voters voting for him, and in fact, he had a he had a larger total, but a smaller a smaller number of the percentage of total voters. I I wonder. What gave him the extra boost this time, do you think, those extra 6% supporting him? What shifted within our riding that people voted for him that didn't vote for him the last time, maybe? Well, I, first off, I should say it is actually quite a remarkable turn of events to, to get more votes, uh, a higher percentage of your vote in, in your second election. That, that's quite rare. Uh, normally... There's enthusiasm the first time you run. Your team works a little bit harder. People are that are looking for change embrace that opportunity that, that, that you're bringing to the table. And the second time, it's great. It's more of the traditional party support. I really think that 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 uh, four plus percent uh, that um, that David was able to improve his percentage of the popular vote is a testament to those two things I talked about earlier. I, I, I'm, 
I'm perhaps not one of those that believes the local candidate is only worth 5% of the vote and that the leader and the party label account for the rest. I think in the 52 years that I've been, been uh, involved in uh, provincial and federal politics, um, I've seen a lot of MPs and MPPs, and I think there is a difference between what, what they all bring to the table. And uh, I'm not going to repeat the points uh, ad nauseum, but I really think David uh, was out there. He met people in every corner of the riding. And it, it really is a fundamentally important aspect of the job. You can't just sit in your office at Queen's Park. You have to be out there. You have to listen to people. You have to respond to, to the things they, they tell you. And I think David has done a great job of that. And, and, and I will say as well, the fact that he was elevated to cabinet uh, in, the, in his first term uh, is, is really quite exceptional. Even more exceptional because normally cabinet spots, there are about two dozen, a bit more than two dozen spots. They're normally distributed across the riding. And David had a minister right next door, actually had a, in the shuffle, um, uh, Laurie Scott went out of cabinet I'm on the other side of our riding. But, but even to have two contiguous ridings with ministers is not, not the norm. So I think wearing that hat as well, he has comported himself in a way that has encouraged people to believe he's someone they can talk to, somebody he will, who will listen and take their concerns down to Queen's Park and amplify those concerns uh, all the way into the cabinet room. And uh, it's anyone's guess what's going to happen in the creation of a cabinet this time. And folks should not take it as a slight if somebody's in or somebody's out. The reality is in every election, premiers tend to have more cabinet quality people than they have cabinet spots. So there's an element of, of just uh, being fair to, to share access to the, uh, to the cabinet. Uh, process. I'd like to come back to that a little bit later. That's something I definitely sure. want to okay. talk to you about. But um, I also wonder, though, about voter turnout having an impact. In other words, I know uh, last time we in this riding had the greatest percentage voter turnout of well over 60%, while the province itself had about 53% turnout. Yesterday's election had to be a record low, 43% provincially. And I think we were down to number four in terms of voter turnout barely over 60%, I, if I remember my numbers. Did that have an impact, again, that maybe people who maybe normally would have supported uh, other parties or, or voted in a certain way, do you think that had an impact on the results locally last night? Well, the first thing I would, I would say to that question, Robert, is that our riding maintained that differential for the province. In fact, actually expanded it. Um, Last time, I, I think it was 51.38% of our uh, potential voters turned out. And that is a, a sad number. I would be the first to, to uh, agree. Um, but it's an almost 8% uh, differential to what happened across the rest of the province. 8% is, I mean, that's almost 20% more people voted in this riding than voted as a percentage of the eligible voters and voted across the rest of Ontario. Uh, so clearly the people in this riding were that much more motivated as they were in 2018. 
across the board, David got 27,000 votes last time, he got 21. So I don't think it would be fair to characterize that that differential between the 51% that turned out this time and the over 60% last time was all in one camp or the other. Uh, just the opposite. I think there are a number of factors that, that play into voter turnout. Number one is your satisfaction with what's happening. It's ironic. You would think it's a, it would be the opposite, that the better your business is doing, the better your family is doing, the, the more your problems have been solved, whatever those problems might have been in, in your family's life, you'd be more motivated to get up on election day and vote, cast your ballot. Well, I saw firsthand back in 2003 that in fact, having kept all your promises, crime having gone down, employment having gone way up, business prosperity way up, that the people who, who were motivated to fix those things when you first ran, they just stayed home thinking, oh, somebody else will turn out and, and do the right thing. So I think for all three of the candidates, there was probably an element of people saying on the, on the PC side, eh, um, I'm happy with what he's been doing, but eh, there's no burning issue. I think it's probably likely my neighbor's going to go out and vote. So I, I, I won't worry about it too much. And with the other two opposition parties, it was, I suspect, a phenomenon that they saw the writing on the wall. I, I, I can honestly say this, Robert, and I, I'm, I'm certainly not here to be an, an apologist or a, a salesperson for one political party. But in those 52 years, I have never seen a sign contest that was so one-sided. And it, and it happens to be quite a science, uh, the, the percentage of people who take lawn signs is, is, lar is largely fixed. It works out to be 10% or so of all of your potential voters. So when you see on any road in this riding, blue signs up and down the, the highway, up down the road, and in an entire day of, of driving through Crammy Township, for example, um, uh, the day before the election, I saw two liberal signs and one NDP sign. I have never seen that, in this, and certainly not in this ride. I would have said just the opposite. I, I could have told you farm and home locations that had taken blue or red signs every election since I first moved out here 45 years ago. Uh, they didn't have them up this time. And that tells, I mean, there's so many answers to your question, but they weren't motivated clearly by the message from those teams. And they weren't upset enough with, with what they, government is doing, has done, to, to, uh, to spend the time and effort to put up the signs and clearly to go out and vote to support well, those other parties. It was really interesting last night in the panel. One of the panelists admitted that she didn't vote. It wow. was shocking. And, you know, we talked about it a bit and she expressed her disillusion with all of the parties. And when I see a result where we're talking about 43% of the province only voting. That's not even a majority, not even close to a majority. No. I wonder how many people out there were like her. There was also another panelist. She did vote. And she said, you know, I voted with my heart and not with my head. And that also brings another factor, which I, I, I hope we can address as well. And that is this feeling of strategic voting, where I can't really vote where my conscience is. And I have to vote strategically if I hope to see a result that I want. So let's start with people who are disillusioned. Does this number speak to a disillusionment, something that po all political parties should be concerned about 
in terms of giving a message and speaking to, and this is a young mother, 31 year old mother who says, I, I, I can't find anybody that I really support. How do you respond to that? Well, there's no doubt there has been a slow and steady decline in voter turnout for the, the last two generations. Uh, it wasn't unique. This, this is an exceptional case, but it's not the first time we've seen uh, a decline like this. It used to be the norm that well over two thirds of eligible voters uh, turned out at the polls. And even that's a little distressing when you see countries like Australia, where in the face of a yes, you get fined if you don't vote, but it's a, not, a, not a significant fine. As I recall, it's about $50 Canadian, uh, but they have a 92% voter turnout. Same as some of the cantons in Switzerland. There are ways to motivate people, and clearly we have not found one of those ways. But what about uh, policy, though? That's what I want you to talk about, because we can that, talk about that, all that, these that, tricks. But where's the policies? What, what are politicians need to do to engage these people? Well, allow me uh, perhaps a little deeper philosophical answer to, to this question. I think as the province's population grows, there will be an inevitable feeling that I'm a smaller and smaller piece of a bigger and bigger piece of machinery. And my relative power, whether it's municipally, provincially, or federally, will continue to decline. When you, when you think that Toronto, when I was born, had one-fifth the population it has right now, and counties such as Northumberland were, were almost 80% rural in terms of the population, the, the the, the evolution in our society has made it more difficult to feel that you're actively engaged, that, there is a, that there's a place for you at the table. And I don't see any, anything changing in that in the future. Uh, so that's not, a, that's not a policy position vis-a-vis -vis immigration. It's just a statement of fact. It doesn't matter. In our case, it's not so much immigration. It's the, it's the migration of folks from the GTA out here. I, I, let's let's build on that for a second, because I think that's really, really important. The growth study for Northumberland County talks about 125,000 people by, what is it, 20, uh, 2020, 2050 or 2035. Yeah. No, a lot of these are going to be people migrating out of Toronto. Is that changing the political landscape in this riding? In other words, the people that are coming out here are bringing different political values than maybe what we've seen traditionally. Um. That's a tough one because clearly everyone has seen the value of homes go up. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you lived in in, in Toronto or the surrounding uh, cities. You, you have seen your family's resources go up if, if you were fortunate enough to be a homeowner. And, and so when people look around them and say Qual for quality of life reasons or they're, they're getting older and they've decided to look for a retirement uh, community, the ability to move to Northumberland um, is probably unprecedented. Uh, not that we're a particularly expensive part of the province, just the opposite. Their ability to move anywhere outside Toronto is unprecedented. Uh, and so I don't think it's just one, uh, uh, one type of voter, one, one demographic that's coming out here. It may be skewed a little bit more to, when you talk about the retirement community, to those who were in business and and uh, that may suggest either a liberal or conservative uh, lean to their politics. Uh, but there will be folks moving out here, even from, from ridings uh, such as Oshawa, who, who have traditionally been um, either conservative or new Democrat. 
And certainly anybody from moving downtown Toronto could could never be accused of, it, on average, bringing conservative uh, uh, views out here. They, you only have to look at the voting results, even, even in the face of a devastating election result for the Liberals and NDP, downtown Toronto continues to to be a, a, a place that they comfortably win their ridings. And so when people move out of Leslieville or any of those communities in downtown Toronto, I think that they're likely to be bringing more of a, an NDP uh, bent to their uh, their future votes here in the riding. So I, I, I would be reluctant to say that it will necessarily change. On the other hand, the fact that in, the, in those Toronto ridings, they tend to have an even lower turnout than we do in rural ridings. That may be a, a factor. If you've already decided that when you lived in Toronto that, um, that it was too tough to have access to the politicians, they were too remote. Ironically, even with our capital building being right <laughs> within walking distance of many of those downtown ridings, uh, it, then, then they, will, they will bring that perspective with them as well. I think it takes time for someone like uh, like David, our our local member, with a very customer focused approach to politics, to to systemically change that. If you see him at your Tim Hortons, if you see him at your church basement uh, at some community meeting, if you see him at shift change in your business, you're more likely to feel comfortable then. Uh, believing that there really is an ear that's taking your your concerns down to Queen's Park and and there's a reason for you to get out and vote for a personal connection that draws that. So I, I, I'm not despairing. Uh, I think it, it may also have just been a function that, that nobody was advancing really bold and innovative ideas. Uh, no one was talking about the first of something about uh, social service. Uh, no, it wasn't the first time we were debating welfare or public health or uh, separate school funding or something like that. Well, it's fascinating too, because when you look at the other parties, I mean, the Liberals pretty much held the same percentage of the vote. This time they got 25%, last time they got 24%. Now the NDP, they dropped substantially. They, yep. they only got 13% of the vote. Last time they had 24 and they were in second place. What's more interesting, though, I think, is the Green Party had one of its best returns, almost 6%. And the last time they were only at 4%. When you're looking at that, what does that say to you? Well, it's tough to, to, to be uh, a candidate for anything but the, the, the three main uh, political parties. And I, my hat is off to those who, who take the chance, who put their name forward, and advance specific policy ideas. Of course, in Europe, the Green Party has become a fixture. Um, but here in Canada, it's been a very tough sell, in part because a lot of the environmental aspects of their message are already well embedded in, in the, uh, the psyche and the policies of, of the three main political parties. I mean, ironically, it, 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 I, I won't go on too far of a tangent here, Robert, I promise. But when you look at the environmental initiatives in this province, they're almost all the big ones. They're almost all exclusively PC. Conservation authorities, the Niagara Escarpment Protection, the Oak Ridges Moraine Protection, most provincial parks that have ever been created. The biggest protection of land in the history of the province of Ontario took place on August 1st, 1999, 
when an area the size of New Brunswick was taken off limits, was, was taken away from any possible future development and created into a series of parks and preserves. And so if you've got that from the party that I think if I were to ask most media pundits who was the biggest supporter of the environment, it wouldn't be PC that they answered. And yet ironically, but demonstrably, it has been. But people have ready access to parks. They, they hear about things such as just, um, oh, about three weeks before the election, in combination with the Nature Conservancy of Canada, the federal government, provincial government, uh, created a reserve north of Hearst in Northern Ontario. It's 165,000 hectares, 165 square kilometers. That's a massive piece of land. And it's not going to be forested. It's not going to be mined. It's not going to be developed in any way. It's there to protect species, biodiversity, habitat, uh, all of the things that governments claim that they care about, uh, put into action. And but Steve, so Steve, you, Steve, let's just take that apart. I want to talk about this because this is really important. And at the same time, even last night when David was, I interviewed him, after he won, he talked about the infrastructure. He talked about Highway 413. He talked about the Bradford Bypass. And when you when you look at that, I mean, we're talking in, in those cases, we're talking of huge swaths of protected land. We're talking about crossing rivers and environmentalists are just going crazy about this. How how do you how do you square that circle? Well, here's here's the first thing I would offer. A they're not built yet. B, um, I think this is the perfect opportunity for people to make those concerns heard. And I think they have. I think the election campaign was, was a great opportunity to do that. I think the Bradford, I, I have a personal connection up there. At one point, our family had the Canadian Tire Store in Bradford. So I know that community very well. And I know how ironic it is that we built two parallel north-south highways, 400 and 404, and have no way to connect them. You can drive through local streets, but somebody should have been thinking of these things 20, 30, 40 years ago, because it was inevitable that the, the, the people traveling between those uh, highways would need, uh, the, the, the volume of traffic would grow to the point you need that. So if done properly, and the Ministry of Transportation certainly is aware of the need to, to find as few uh, I mean, uh, ways of avoiding as many disturbances of the natural heritage as possible. Uh, the Bradford Bypass, I think you put in one category. Highway 413, I have a very different perspective. And I've shared this with David. Um, until the Highway 407 is full, I don't believe there's any, any uh, logic behind investing $10 billion on another highway that basically parallels it. Uh, one of the things that I suspect will come out of this debate is a lot more people are aware that Highway 407, in fact, owes us a lot of money. When the lease was first created, part of there's a term in there that, that says they have to divert a certain percentage of the traffic away from Highway 401. They have not met that. I am not privy to the exact amount, but I am told that it's now in excess of a billion dollars. Well, you don't have to be much of a negotiator if the other guy owes you a billion dollars to say, I've got some good news, I got some bad news. I'm not gonna claim the billion dollars, but I want the tolls taken off between Highway 400 and Highway 401, or reduced as the first step and ultimately taken off. 
And after you've demonstrated that the 407 was incapable of taking the, a sufficient volume off the 401, relieving the pressures that 413 is supposed to be designed to do, only then should you get start start acquiring the land and, and investing in a third highway. So, so I think the debate will continue on the 413. And I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised to see if it, A, it doesn't happen, or if it does happen, it doesn't happen for decades. We're talking though, I mean, from an environmental standpoint of view, we're talking about raising 800 hectares of farmland which is a huge loss. I mean, we already lose 175 acres every of land day. every day. Every day. And, and then we're gonna pave over 160 hectares of the green belt, cut through 85 waterways. So how then, if we're, if we're supposed to be environmentally smart and we're supposed to be working towards sustainable environment, how does any of this even come close to meeting those goals? Well, I, I, I think anyone that listens to my show knows where I stand on this issue, Robert. Um, I don't think it's a necessary intrusion in the green belt. And, and I think the premier himself uh, has made it clear that his goal is not to take anything out of the green belt. I guess if you were to take some land out in one part of the province and add it back in on another, take, take a, uh, a greater amount of, of land and add it to the green belt, there would be a debate, uh, a reasonable debate of whether that the net value to the environment is positive or negative. I, I think we should be pushing for an expansion of the green belt, notwithstanding things like Highway 413. The, the province has, has an active debate going on right now about expanding the green belt. There's been two series of public consultations. Uh, I've made my views, uh, I think, clear, not, not just to David, but in the process, you're, you were allowed to write in and offer your thoughts. And I think every part of Northumberland County north of Highway 401 should be added to the Greenbelt. We're already covered, 24% of Northumberland County is covered by the Oak Ridge's Moraine protection. But for whatever reasons, when the Liberals brought in the Greenbelt, it stopped at the Durham-Northumberland border. I, I never understood that because the, really their goal was to just uh, take take ownership back of the Oak Ridge's Moraine issue by by putting something that was slightly bigger, uh, a, a land protection issue that was slightly bigger than the boundaries of the, the Oak Ridge's Moraine. But they didn't do that in Northumberland. I've always marveled at that. But we have a chance to add that commentary. So if you told me we were adding uh, thousands of hectares of land to the Greenbelt out there, I would be less concerned about losing 160 hectares in York region, but that, but I'm still concerned about the 160 in York region, and and so I I truly believe this debate will continue, and I think that uh, anyone who really cares about it, a, should have shown up to vote, um, and I don't, that sounds harsh, but I come from the school that we each have an opportunity every four years, to be part of the system, and if you don't find the 10 minutes to vote, quite frankly. Keep your opinions to yourself for the next four years, unless it's a new issue. That's harsh. I get it. But the, the reality is you can't now show up at the coffee shop tomorrow. And say, well, you know, the government's bad for doing this and this and this. I didn't I didn't think it was worth any of my time to go and actually vote for the other guys but, or gals. But 
but I, that, that we've just had the opportunity for that debate. And so I, have, I guess my final point on this, Robert, to you is to the extent that it wasn't a big enough issue to sway people, even in the writings that 413 will go through, uh, do I find it a little distressing? Yep, but I have to respect the views of the people. If the people living in King Vaughan and Vaughan Woodbridge and uh, Milton and uh, Calvin, Dufferin Calvin, if they voted in favor of the government that wants it, then I, I have to respect that view. No, I won't stop. <laughs> I won't stop criticizing 413. Well, well you've you said a couple of times now that you've spoken to David Piccini about this. Is he going? Is he hearing what you're saying? Because last night he was pretty clear, like he was gung ho, and this is right out of his mouth. Almost the first couple of things he said was, "Bang, this is going forward." So, what you know? How does that make you feel after somebody who has your knowledge, your background, your political experience asking him to do something? And it seems to me he's not really hearing you. I, I don't know. What's your impression? Is he hearing you? Well, well, let, let me start with this thought. First off, I'm one of a hundred and some odd thousand constituents. So David needs pay my views no more heed than he would anyone else. And no less, um, I would hope. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is, this, this may sound like a strange concept, but I... I lived through it myself uh, when I was the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. When you're when you become a, a member of cabinet, the process. Now I'm I'm talking in in very philosophical terms here. The process is such that you no longer have an opinion. Your opinions are whatever cabinet says are the government's policies. It's different from being a backbencher. When you're in cabinet, there has to be cabinet solidarity. So. At such time as the government makes a certain decision, your public face is very much as a representative of that view. What happens in the cabinet room, I can tell you, is very, very different. And at some point, as with any debate, within a family context or a business context, at some point, the facts, the logic will sway people in one direction, but if there's new facts and new information, such as an election result, that may change people's views. So we'll, once the new cabinet is sworn in, it will be first off their business to deal with this, not the old cabinet, the new cabinet. And they are not bound by anything the old cabinet did. But once, but once you're in there, David, and if, if he's fortunate enough to go back into cabinet again, the, the answers he has to give you about matters that have come before cabinet are very much driven by that the the rules that govern the executive council is this what happened with wesleyville when the wesleyville land deal just before the election went sideways and the province came in and everything changed and david was very strong in support of the government coming in and yet he had spent the last two years supposedly working with the town to get to the point that they had. It seemed like he flipped. Is this the explanation of why he reacted the way he did? So again, David, I think, has done a great job of, of listening to the right. I would say in the case of Wesleyville, um, that uh, unlike our discussion a few seconds ago, 413, here was a local issue. Your local MPP, when, when he or she is in cabinet, has the ability to take 
certain views to the highest levels of government and in a private setting, articulate those views. I wasn't the least bit surprised because I, I heard a little bit of the feedback David was getting once that uh, arrangement became public. And I think that his constituents had every reason to be furious, A, that it had been kept secret, B, that the same municipal government that has allowed the, the uh, said they will permit the, the destruction of 2,700 trees at the Lion Center and ultimately 50,000 trees as part of the Port Hope Area Initiative, that they were the ones gonna be trusted with 700 acres of environmentally sensitive land, um, a little incongruous. And I, I think a lot of people, uh, many of whom I know, went to David and said, this is not something that the Ontario Power Generation should be doing. This is absolutely not something. And, and whether or not some version of that, that sale takes place in the future with the lands that some folks say could be developed, I'd love to see the entire thing become a, a park or preserve. Um, the, the environmentally sensitive lands should never, ever, ever have left the control of the province. And, and, and so, I wasn't the slightest bit surprised when Wesleyville went the way it did. You only have to go and visit those lands, including the environmentally sensitive lands, and see the ATV tracks going through uh, uh, up along the banks of some of those creeks, eroding them, uh, destroying the vegetation. And again, that's part of Port Hope right now. You can't, they, they don't get to take the position that somehow they have been removed from the ability to, to um, maintain law and order on those lands. They have done nothing to stop the ATVs. They've done nothing to, to protect and enhance local community groups, the Willow Beach folks. Uh, they've been fighting the good fight. But I, again, I think Wesleyville evolved exactly the way it should have. Let the people know what's happening. And then, based on their feedback, government should act. It, it fascinates me because, you know, when you when this all happened and there was so much uh, going on in social media and people were talking about it, debating, I know there were two sides to it. And yet when the election campaign came along, crickets. And it was it's the same with like long term care. I mean, during COVID-19, 4,400 vulnerable seniors died during that. And yet during the election campaign, nothing. Education, parents were through the roof upset with how the province handled uh, going back to school, masks, all this. There was so much that went on during online courses and, and then the handling of the pandemic itself. I mean, there were businesses that were angry during it, during the lockdowns, there were the anti-vaxxers. And again, during the campaign, there were crickets. What was going on there with those issues? Why weren't they out and, and debating this stuff? And what does that tell you? Well, I, I'd have to circle back around to the very first question you posed. I, I think there was a material difference in the attitude of the three party leaders. I, you had one, the premier, who was talking very positive. Uh, his platform was a very positive one. He, he was always out there smiling. He's always engaged with, uh, it could be construction workers. It could have been whatever setting he was in. You got the sense, here was a guy who was, who was, uh, uh, a, uh, running, running on his past successes, but had, in, in fact, some kind of a vision for a brighter. Uh, OK, okay. we won't we won't we won't mow the same grass. I, I, I wonder, though, to what extent 
But, I, but I think it's, I think okay. it's the explanation, Robert. I, I think that all of us, it, it, different aspects, but I'm sure all of us had some reason to be critical of both senior levels of government. Throughout. I, and I really mean that. I'd, I'd be astounded if there's anybody that was 100% happy all the way through. But I think most people have put those things in the rearview mirror. And, and when you've got two leaders that keep dredging it up, I think people, most people, said, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Uh, it was terrible. The, it was a terrible affliction uh, in those nursing homes. It was terrible what we, we've done to kids in, 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 for good reasons, in, in part, um, in terms of their, their social development by, by uh, remote schooling and, and social distancing and all of those things. But that's behind us. And, and I don't want to listen to that. And I don't want to, to be reminded of that because I believe we're beyond it and, and we can look forward with a, a more positive view. I really, truly believe that that, more than anything else, drove the vote results. And if either of the other two political parties had, in fact, stopped making personal attacks, and, 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 and I've got to say this, and stop saying things that are just profoundly stupid, there is nothing... They, the, and the Liberal Party in particular were grilled by, by uh, media. Show us one example of where the premier wants to privatize healthcare. And they couldn't do it. So telling people, the, the, bringing out the old boogeyman that, that this party is going to do that and, and they're, they're anathema to public health or welfare or public housing, people have grown tired of it because they know it's not true. And, and you can't keep flogging the same horse every four years and expect people somehow magically to react differently this time. So, so that, that's... Well, let, let me, <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think your point is well made about people moving on. I, I think everybody was sick of the pandemic now that there's some return to some form of normalcy. Uh, although I don't like saying back to normal because it isn't normal, but you know we're in a different phase now, and and people are relieved. It's nice out. Everybody's out in their garden working. I agree with the, all of that that you said, but I also wonder to what extent that the affordability issue really pushed through. The fact that we're going through these economic hard times. I mean, you go out and buy groceries right now. Every time you go in that grocery store, prices are going up. Inflation is a huge issue. You go to the gas pumps. It's crazy. I mean, you know, when I'm, I pump gas twice a week. So when I, cause I commute down to loyalists and I, I tell you that gas tanks half fill of my tears as I cry, as I put it in because it's so expensive. Like it, it's just so incredible. Did that factor, do you think played a role in pushing us back these other issues that were so prevalent? And we, we just are now so focused on the affordability issue. I think I think uh, you're probably bang on there, Robert. That it was one of the reasons why there's less of a focus on things behind us because we see this problem today and ahead of us. Um, I I have to take some comfort that the public knows what they're doing. I mean, you can't approach politics with a level of conceit that says the voters are out of touch. The voters are more in touch. And particularly when you magnify it by the millions of people that cast their vote. And we have to conclude that, again, of the three offerings, one had a demonstrably more attractive approach to dealing with affordability. History will prove whether that's right or wrong. But I think there's also uh, a level of resignation with that. 
uh, it, it's it's the forces at play in Russia and Ukraine. It's the global price for oil, and and when people then say magically here in Ontario, I've got the a recipe that will prevent all of this grief. Nobody's going to believe you. They just no no thinking person is going to believe you. So within the the, the range of tools that government does have at its disposal, I think. And again, the, the votes would suggest this is the case, that there was one party that offered something that was more credible, in this case, taking off all the gas tax. I mean, you can't go much beyond all. And um, as of July 1st, we're seeing that, what, 5.8 cent reduction at the pump. And I can only hope the government makes it very clear to the oil companies that when you see it come off, absent any future external uh, price change on the 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 cost of uh, the raw materials, uh, we expect to see that 5.8 cents stay up. There's so much more that I would love to talk to you about. <laughs> it, it, this we could go on forever. There's so many issues that we didn't touch on, and, and I appreciate it. I want to finish with a more personal um, perspective. You've fought elections. You were part of a government that won back-to-back -back elections. Share with us that feeling when you're, you've done a campaign you're you're watching the results come back and you you suddenly realize I won. <laughs> well, it's pretty good. You you, you you failed to mention I lost my first election. And it was a squeaker. Uh, it was virtual three way tie. We were all only about a thousand votes apart, all three main parties um, that motivates you. You're so close, but not quite there that long before. We, we normally would have started campaigning. We, we were out there knocking on doors. So, so to have, in that case, five years worth of, of work uh, translated into an election success was very heady stuff. It truly was. The, uh, when I first won, uh, just I couldn't have been more excited. And, and I couldn't have been more grateful to the hundreds and hundreds of people who had come out door knocking and helped the sign, put, put up the signs and and done uh, uh, restaurants that had provided uh, food. It, it really was a group effort. <clears throat> and, and it's critically important that you never lose sight of that. You aren't the, the be all and end all. You are just the pointy end of the spear. And, and so that's great. The re-election was even, <laughs> even sweeter. I got to tell you, Robert, we had gone through the City of Toronto amalgamation and if you'd, if you'd believe the media reports, oh my goodness, they would be devastated. So to actually get more votes, more, not just percent, but more votes the second time um, was very gratifying. And again, it, it emboldens you to continue to do whatever it is you've been doing, if it's a winning formula. And when you lose an election, it challenges you to find a, a, a different path. Uh, maybe you hadn't connected well enough. Maybe you hadn't worked hard enough. Maybe you hadn't built a big enough team. Maybe your party's message was wrong. So you go back to the next policy conference and you say, hey, hey, fellow party members, we need to be laser focused on this issue or that issue. So it's very gratifying. I imagine it'll take David quite a while to come down off cloud nine here and, uh, and, uh, and come to grips with the fact that he's had this, this very decisive victory again today. And I hope the other candidates reflect on the fact that it really is important that we have as many views out there as possible. Uh, the Green Party, you had mentioned, there were two other fringe uh, conservative, right-wing conservative parties. One of them got 2%, one of them got 
if, if you wanted to approach it that way, it doesn't sound like much, but then between them, they got 5,000 votes. And, and so they should, all of the candidates should be very proud of the fact they had the courage to put their names forward. They advanced their views. The voters had the ultimate say, and I hope people respect that and, and understand that now we've given our, our, both the government and opposition members their marching orders. And let's see if we can find a productive uh, outcome to all of this in the next four years and, and between them, find a way of making sure that Ontario lives up to its promise of, of, of being the most prosperous and uh, best place to live in this country. I, we've done it before. I think we'll do it again. COVID's behind us. And I think there's, to, to quote our prime minister, sunny days ahead. If you could take David Puccini aside, put your arm around him and give him a piece of advice based on 52 years in politics, what would you say to him? Hmm. Well, that's a toughie because there, there are a lot of things come to, come to mind. But I would say, first and foremost, that if he's fortunate enough to go into cabinet, to make sure that he becomes as well-versed as he possibly can. At the end of the day, he, he's the person who will be held accountable, not his deputy minister, not the civil servants that work underneath the de that deputy. He will be the person that, that is blamed for things that go wrong and rarely given credit for things that go right. It's up to him to make sure he is absolutely up to speed on all of the aspects of how that ministry operates. It, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I had 1,456 staff member and uh, dozens of different uh, issues. And so even a ministry like environment has so many challenges before. But I think if you become versed in all aspects, before you start offering your, your own policy perspectives, you're less likely to step on a landmine. You're less likely to, to mess up. And uh, preparation is key, not just in politics, in ever, all of our aspects of life, all aspects of our lives. And, and I think if he does that, if he continues to listen to people, if he continues to, to be accountable to them, I think he's going to have a, a great second term. Stephen Gilchrist, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Robert. I really appreciate the opportunity and best of luck on, on all your future shows. That was Steve Gilchrist, former MPP and Northumberland County resident. Admittedly, it was painful to end our discussion. Despite the length of the interview, it barely scratched the surface. There were so many issues that we did not discuss or explore. Still, I hope you, the listener, found our conversation valuable. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.